This is, I, I just love getting to stand up here and watch relationships either, you know, deepen or initiate. It's just really, really fun. Um, glad to see many of you I know that have been sick, that have kind of made your way back. Grateful that um, many of you are feeling more healthy. Hopefully you are. If not, you know, we, we share everything but germs, so go ahead and keep those to yourself. Pastor Jeff would love to be here, but he, was, he, he came down with like a, a cough, and he's like, I'm just not going to share whatever I've got. So he's at home. We can pray for him. In fact, you know what? Let me do that. Let me, let me just take a moment. With the coronavirus going around, with, with just the flu and everything else, let me just take a moment to pray for those who are not well. Father, we thank you for creating our bodies uh, to be able to fight off uh, bacteria and viruses and things like that. We pray for those right now whose lives are turned upside down, whether because they're fighting a sickness currently or because they're terrified that if you even step outside of their door, they may um, contract something. So we pray for those in China. We pray for those who are currently hiding from this virus that's just kind of floating in the air. We pray, Father, for those who are battling flu, for those who are battling cold, for those who are battling depression, for those who are battling uh, loneliness. In this time, in a month where we celebrate connection, we pray for those who feel totally isolated. We thank you so much for the way you love us. We thank you that regardless of what happens with sickness, it does not get the last word you do. We pray that you would have your hand upon today, Jesus, in your holy name. Amen. All right, if you have a Bible, go ahead and turn with me to Acts chapter 9. We are, are slowly working our way through the story of the early church. And for those of you who are just kind of jumping in with us, uh, this is a conversation we've been having for several months. And so let me just go ahead and very quickly bring you up to speed. Jesus commissioned his followers, his disciples. And when we say the word disciple, what we mean is a fully committed follower of Jesus. So Jesus commissioned his disciples to continue his ministry, to go make more disciples. And he said, you're going to begin here in Jerusalem, but then into the kind of the, the broader region of Judea, and then even to those untouchables in Samaria, the places that you typically don't want to go. And then finally, you're going to reach the ends of the earth with this good news of great joy because I have come to restore relationship with mankind to God. That is what I came to do, and I want you to be the bearers of this good news. But wait here in Jerusalem until you've been empowered by the Holy Spirit to do it, because by yourself, all you're going to do is make an unholy mess. But with my Spirit, nothing will stand in the way. And that's exactly what happened when God's Spirit fell on the early church on Pentecost, about 50 days after Jesus was crucified everything changed. Like I, I, I've likened it to God putting some spiritual mentos into the Coke that was the early church. And the, the room that they were in couldn't contain them. And they just spilled out into the streets and they began to share the gospel. And some 3,000 on the first day came to accept the good news and choose to follow Jesus with their lives. But then the movement stalled out. And, and, and they didn't go into Judea or Samaria or to the ends of the earth. They just stayed in Jerusalem where they were known, where it was familiar, where it was relatively safe. And I get this, right? It's our human tendency to want to surround ourselves with people who think like us, act like us, perhaps vote like us, perhaps do the things we do, who look similar to us, people who accept us, who, where everybody knows your name, right? This is, we want to be in cheers, 
But the reality is God never called us to be comfortable, and following Him is not a promise that we will be comfortable. And so He allowed it to get pretty uncomfortable for the early church. He's not the one who caused persecution or made persecution happen, but He allowed the persecution to happen through the religious establishment, through the, uh, the Jewish rulers, they began to say, hey, th this is a dangerous movement. They're claiming a Messiah that we don't accept as our Messiah. And we got to stamp this thing out. And so they began to persecute the early church. And it culminates with the stoning or the, the murder of the very first Christian martyr, a guy named Stephen. And in that moment, the early church is scattered. We've likened it to a dandelion that God allows persecution to kind of be the breath that finally blows the seeds that are the early Christ followers on the breeze, carried along by the Holy Spirit to some very unlikely places. And where they land, they begin to share the gospel message. And one of the places they land is a place called Damascus. It's about 175 miles north into the east. Can we throw the, the um, map up here? I, I understand that this is going to be difficult for many of you to see, but this is the best map I've been able to find. And it's a topographical map, meaning it shows you down here at the bottom, right here is Jerusalem. That's my laser pointer right here. It's an analog version. Um, so this is Jerusalem. And as you can see, it's up in the mountains. That's why wherever Jews are, they always say, let's go up to Jerusalem because Jerusalem was located on a mountain range. So this is Jerusalem. And some people would kind of travel the spine, but probably one of the, um, the paths they would, they would take is they would go down into the Jordan River Valley. That area right there between the Sea of Galilee and the Dead Sea is the Jordan River. That was where Jesus was baptized, right? They would take that valley up north, hook around the Sea of Galilee and up into Syria to the capital city of Damascus. That's one of the cities about 175 miles north and east of Jerusalem, that some of the believers landed. And when they got to Damascus, they began to share the good news. Jesus is the long-awaited Messiah. He has come. He died for our sins and gave us the ability to be restored back into relationship with God. And what's even better is he rose from the dead, declaring once and for all that he was who he said he was, and he did what he claimed he could do. And so we don't have to remain estranged from God. That was the good news. And people began to embrace it. And the church began to grow in Damascus. And word began to spread that the gospel had come to Damascus. In fact, it got all the way back, 175 miles south. It got back to Jerusalem. And it started tickling the ears of this guy named Saul. Now, we've been introduced to Saul before. He was a guy who was trained as a Pharisee. He had studied under the, one of the most celebrated Pharisees of his day, a guy named Gamaliel. Saul was ahead of so many of his peers in his understanding of the law of Moses. He was a religious expert. And when he heard the gospel message, when he heard Stephen preaching that Jesus was the Messiah, he recognized how damaging it might be to the Jewish faith. That it was... It, he, he considered Jesus to be a false gospel or a, a, a false Messiah. He did not believe Jesus was anything but a crucified carpenter and a failed revolutionary. And so he took it upon himself to crush the, the seeds of the gospel before they could ever take root. And so he gave his blessing on that day when Stephen was stoned to death. He was standing there saying, yes, I approve 
of this message. And then he took upon himself to begin to stamp out the gospel in Jerusalem, arresting men and women who claimed to be Christ followers, bringing them before the Sanhedrin, saying, these people will not shut up. Would you shut them up for me? And what we're going to find now is that when Saul hears about what's going on up in Damascus, he kind of volunteers to be the guy to go stamp out the gospel up there as well. So all that brings us up to speed into Acts chapter 9, verse 1. Meanwhile, Saul, and if you're getting, by the way, if you get kind of confused, Saul and Paul, at some point I might accidentally do that. Saul's name in, in Greek, his Romanized name is Paul. So that's how we often talk about him. But here we're, ta- we're referring to him as Saul, okay? So, so meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. And he went to the high priest the person who led the Sanhedrin, and he basically asked for letters of of recommendation, giving him permission to represent them in going to Damascus. And he asked for letters to the synagogues in Damascus so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, the way is the way that they began to refer to the early church then, because Jesus was the way, the truth, and the life, they started referring to themselves as members of the way and said, if I find any members of the way up there, any people who are preaching this false gospel, do I have your blessing to arrest them and drag them in chains back down here to Jerusalem to stand trial? And the Sanhedrin goes, absolutely, please go with our blessing. Verse three, we, we fast forward. Paul or, or Saul rounds up a posse of other um, very zealous Jews and says, we are going to go arrest ourselves, some Christians. They start heading up to Damascus. And just as they're nearing this, this is a 175 mile road trip, probably on foot, which means this has taken probably 15 to 20 days to get there, depending on how quickly they were walking. As they neared Damascus and their journey was coming to an end, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him and he fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord, Saul said. Whenever you are, you know, a flash of light comes around you and a voice from heaven comes, chances are you want to be respectful to it, right? So let's just, he doesn't even know who he's talking to at this point, but who, who are you, Lord, is a good way of refer, referring to whomever is talking to you. And the voice again, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. Now I'll stop here for a second. Because I, I was under the impression that Saul was persecuting Christians. I was under the impression that Saul was arresting men and women who claimed to follow Jesus, not Jesus himself. But you see, and this is something Paul will come come to recognize later on and will write about extensively in a lot of his letters, what he didn't realize until this point was that not only was Jesus alive, but that the men and women who were claiming to follow Jesus were his hands and feet. They were the body of Christ. And so although he was striking them, it was Jesus who was feeling the pain. And I have to tell you, some of the absolutely most despicable acts in history, things like the Inquisition and things like, um, you know, the, the Crusades, were carried out by people who were zealous in their belief that they were serving God while they were really doing just the opposite. And Saul's one of those guys who was zealous in trying to serve God and in fact was fighting against God. We'll talk more about that in a bit. So I am Jesus whom you are persecuting, Jesus replied. Now, 
Get up and go into the city, Damascus, and you will be told what you must do. The men traveling with Saul, his whole posse, stood there kind of, kind of speechless because they'd heard the sound, but they didn't see anyone. They just, were, they just saw Saul fall on his, on his backside. And so they helped Saul get up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. He was literally blinded by the light. be a good song uh, line, wouldn't it? That's probably where they got it from. <laughs> Revved up like a deuce, another runner in the night. No, maybe not. Maybe not. But you know, whatever. Yeah, so they saw up. He can't see anything. So they led him by hand into Damascus. Here's what I find so fascinating. This guy leaves Jerusalem at the head of a column of armed men with letters saying, we have permission to arrest some Christians. He is powerful in that moment. And yet, by the time he gets to Damascus, he is being led by the hand, completely blinded and humbled. They led him by hand into Damascus, and for three days he was blind and did not eat or drink anything. Now, this sounds like Paul has, or Saul has chosen to fast. But we're not just talking, a regular fast in that day and age would be that they would cease to eat food, but they would still drink water. Or, or perhaps some longer fast, they would eat vegetables, but they would fast from meats or things like that and wine. But he's choosing to do a very extreme type of fast where he doesn't eat or drink anything. And typically people would not engage in that sort of a fast unless they were repenting for something that deeply they recognized was a sin. Now, just for a moment, put yourself in Saul's sandals and consider the way that his encounter with Jesus has changed everything for him. Because Saul's entire spiritual worldview has been flipped on its head. He left Jerusalem convinced that he was serving God by stamping out this false gospel, by, by, by shutting up the very people who were claiming that Jesus was their long-awaited Messiah. He feels that he is serving God, and when he encounters Jesus, he is struck upside the head with the recognition that, no, this whole time I thought I was serving God, I have been working, actively working against him. In fact, I approved of the murder of one of the men who was willing to stand up to some powerful people and say, no, I believe that Jesus is who he claimed to be, and I believe that this temple is not how you get close to God. Paul's entire worldview is flipped on its head, and in that moment, I'm sure he felt like the lowest of the low. I'm sure he felt like he had completely blown it to the point where there was no redemption whatsoever for him. No way he could ever be used by God. Because in his attempts to serve God, he had been working against God. The beautiful thing that we're going to see, though, is that God doesn't tend to give up on us nearly as quickly as we tend to give up on ourselves. And he can use even the most despicable people to do some amazing things. Let's keep reading. Verse 10. While Saul is spending that time in, in a darkened room, basically can't see, just spending time considering the ramifications of his choices and beginning to grapple with the reality that Jesus Jesus is not only alive, but Jesus is God. Uh, God begins to speak to a guy named Ananias. Uh, and in Damascus, there was a disciple 
named Ananias. And the Lord called to him in a vision, Ananias. This is literally Jesus calling, right? God goes, yes, Lord, he answered. And the Lord said to him, go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. In a vision, he's seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. Now let's pause for a moment. Because Ananias has heard about this guy, Paul. Or he's heard about this guy, Saul. He's heard how zealously Saul has tried to stamp out the gospel there in Jerusalem. How effective he's been in dismantling the church. He has heard that Saul has come to Damascus with letters. In fact, that's exactly what he says to God. Um, Lord, I've heard a lot of reports about this man and all the harm he's done to your holy people in Jerusalem. And now he's come here with authority from the chief priests to arrest all who call on your name. Do you really know who this guy is? The reality is, of course, God knows who this guy is. He knows Paul intimately. He knows the ways that he has sought to destroy the church, but he also recognizes when, when neither Saul nor Ananias can see any sort of redeeming quality about Saul, God recognizes that the very things that made Saul such a, a, a damaging kind of personality to the church, namely his zeal for the Lord, would also be the very thing that would help him to build the church up. And so while Ananias and Saul have both written Saul off, God has not. And he says as much. The Lord said to Ananias, go. This man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and to their kings as well as to the people of Israel. I am going to use Saul. I have chosen him. But he doesn't stop there. And I want us to notice, he's the one who chose Saul. Saul did not choose him. He chose him. In verse 16, he goes on, he says, I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. You know, one of, one of the things I recognize is that when people want to get into ministry or when people want to be used by God, our mindset is the more I am used by God, the more God will protect me from the discomfort of this world. The more closely I walk with him, the more I will be protected from you know, either myself or my kids getting sick. Like, my, my kids will all be wonderful. Yeah, have you ever met TKs, right? They're... Oh, yeah, Terry is one, right? Uh, I'm in the process of raising two of them. Pray for us because I recognize that as it, those in ministry are not promised easy lives. In fact, just the opposite. He says, listen, this guy is going to give up a life of comfort, a life where he is deferred to as a religious leader where people come and just want to sit at his feet and listen to him, he is going to suffer for my name. He is going to suffer in breaking ground because Paul or Saul truly was a tool in the hands of God that God was planning to use to break ground for the kingdom of God. But think about every tool you have ever seen. Every tool that I know that has been useful is also marked, scarred, beaten up. The only tools that don't have marks all over them are what? New tools that haven't been used, right? The reality is if God is going to use us, we will bear the marks of that. We are not promised easy, pain-free lives. If God uses us, we will experience 
persecution. We will experience ridicule. We will experience pain. Sometimes God will even allow us to undergo some really, really hard things in our lives. In part, because it allows us to be able to come alongside other people who are hurting. We are not promised he'll protect us. We co- we've talked a lot more about that two weeks ago. If you weren't here for that, but you want to kind of understand why the heck is there so much stinking pain when I'm following Jesus and trying to be faithful, I would encourage you to listen to that one from two weeks ago. But suffice it to say, God says to Ananias, listen, here, this is my guy. I am choosing him to be a tool that I will use to advance my kingdom And just understand, it's not going to be easy for him. I'm going to show him how much he's going to have to suffer for my name. In that moment, Ananias just says, fine, God, you're God and I'm not. I will submit. So Ananias went to the house and entered into it. He placed his hands on Saul and he said to him, brother Saul. Now let's pause and just think about the first two words that Saul hears spoken by a guy that he would have have happily arrested a few days before. The very first words off of Ananias' lips are brother Saul. He has gone from looking at him as an enemy to this is my brother in Christ. And truly, that is the case. We are very different even in this room. There's 55 churches in Costa Mesa. We look very different from each of them, and yet in Christ, we are all family and we are all one. And in that moment, Ananias acknowledged and received Saul as his spiritual sibling. Brother Saul, the Lord, Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, he sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And then he lays his hands upon Saul and immediately something like scales fell away from Saul's eyes and he could see again. And in that moment, he chooses to make a public declaration about his faith. And so before he even breaks his three-day fast, before he takes his first sip of water or has his first bite of food, he asks to be baptized. Not because baptism saves you. We are saved by grace alone, through faith, not by anything we've done so that nobody can kind of boast, this is what I've done. We can't earn our salvation. Rather, he had, he's baptized to publicly declare to himself and to others, I am now a follower of Jesus Christ. I identify with his death and his burial and his resurrection. That's me now. I've died to myself and I now live for him. And so he chooses to be baptized before he ever chooses to take a bite and break his fast. And after taking some food, he regained his strength. Saul spent several days with the disciples there in Damascus. And at once he began to preach in the synagogues that Jesus is the Son of God. And all those who heard him were astonished and asked, isn't this the guy who raised havoc in Jerusalem amongst those who call on his name? Hasn't he come here to take them as prisoners to the chief priests? And yet Saul grew more and more powerful and baffled the Jews living in Damascus by proving that Jesus is the Messiah. You know, one of the the number one excuses people give for why they don't share their faith with others is because they don't have all the answers, right? I, I, I haven't been trained. I haven't gone to seminary. I don't have all the answers for any questions that they're going to ask. I don't know the Bible all that well. One of the things I love about Saul here 
is that the moment that he accepts Christ and chooses to follow him, he goes out and starts sharing even though he doesn't have the answers. He hasn't been discipled by any of the apostles at this point. He hasn't gone back through all of the scriptures to try to understand how Jesus aligns with all of the prophecy of the Old Testament. All he has is his story, but that's enough. And so he goes out and he finds the Jews there in in Damascus and he begins to share his story. Guys, I came here to arrest me some Christians. And then Jesus accosted me on the road. I met him. He He isn't a crucified carpenter. He isn't a failed revolutionary. He is the King of kings and Lord of lords. He is our Messiah that we've been waiting for. I didn't believe it. Now I do. And I want you to know him too because he has opened my eyes in ways I never could have believed. And he begins to share stories. And then he begins to, as he he spends time, he begins to consider more and probably is talking to the disciples more. And so that's why we read here in verse 22 that Saul grew more and more powerful in his ability to reason. It's not that he started with the power to convince everybody. As he continued to share his faith, as he continued to share his story, as he continued to meditate upon God's word, he began to recognize even more and more how Jesus truly was prophesied all throughout scripture. And he he becomes so effective that the Jews living in Damascus cannot help but, but kind of be overwhelmed by his argument. So much so that after many days had gone by, There was a conspiracy amongst the very Jews he came to help arrest Christians with to kill him. Because if you can't beat somebody, you got to shut them up, right? And so they decide, okay, this guy, we can't can't beat him in in proving that Jesus isn't the Messiah. So we just got to shut the guy up. Let's kill him. But Saul learned about their plan. Day and night, these Jews kept close watch on the city gates in order to kill him. But his followers took him by night, lowered him in a basket through an opening in the wall, and he escaped Damascus. When he came to Jerusalem, it could, you know, it was sometime later, when he came to Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples there. But they too, just like the believers in Damascus, were afraid of him. In fact, probably more so afraid of him because they'd experienced the persecution at his hands. They didn't believe that he was really a disciple. They thought that he was trying to infiltrate their numbers so that he could begin to dismantle the church from the inside. But just as God had used a guy named Ananias in Damascus to kind of champion him and and walk with him, he uses a guy named Barnabas in Jerusalem to do the same thing, to, to come alongside of him and to help introduce him to the church as one of their own. Verse 27, so Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and he told them how Saul on his journey had seen the Lord and what the Lord had spoken to him and how in Damascus he had preached fearlessly in the name of Jesus. And so Saul stayed with them and moved about freely in Jerusalem, speaking boldly in the name of the Lord. He talked and debated with the the Hellenistic Jews, the Greek-speaking Jews of of which he had probably been part of that synagogue, right? Because he had been from Tarsus. He moved to Jerusalem, but he had been born as a Greek-speaking Jew and a Roman citizen. And now he is reasoning with other men and women who are just like him who have been raised to believe just the same things. And he's saying, guys, no, I was wrong. Jesus truly is the Messiah, the one we've been waiting for. He's real. I've met him. 
But they tried to kill him because, again, they couldn't outreason him, so let's go ahead and shut him up. And when the believers learned of this, they took him down to Caesarea and sent him back home to Tarsus, where Saul will now undergo about a decades-long study and, and, and preparation for his ministry, for his going on mission. So this is the story of Saul, the conversion of Saul, and it's one of the most powerful stories in Scripture. It's one of those stories I actually heard one commentator say, um, you know, there are two moments in history that are hinge points. That if, if they happened, then Jesus truly is real and everything that we base our scripture on is real. The resurrection of Jesus and Jesus' you know, conversion of Saul, meeting him on the road to Damascus, those two things, if they happened, then everything else hinges upon that if they did not happen then Jesus hasn't been raised from the dead. We are still in our sins and we are to be pitied amongst all men because we have bought into a belief that is not true. And the reality is I would say probably Saul's conversion is probably way, way, way less important than Jesus' raising from the dead. But either way, this is a powerful hinge point that the rest of Acts is going to kind of, be, kind of hang upon because Saul will become Paul who will become the most outspoken. He went from being the most outspoken opponent to being the most outspoken proponent of the gospel. And he builds the church up and he writes letters that comprise over half of our New Testament. So much of our understanding of God, so much of our understanding of our identity, so much of our understanding of grace comes from the pen of a man who sought to shut up other believers until he met Jesus, which is great, but what, what bearing does it have on us today, 20, you know, two centuries later? What bearing does it have on people who are living in the 21st century? Several things. Saul left Jerusalem with the intent to dismantle the church, and then he met Jesus, and Jesus changed everything. Jesus changed his perspective on God, right? Because when he left Jerusalem, his understanding of God was that God is distant, God is all-powerful, and the way that I reach God is through my effort to keep the law. In a lot of ways, Saul looked at the, the Mosaic law that he had been steeped in, that he had gone to Jerusalem and studied under Gamaliel to understand. He saw the law as a stairway that he could climb to reach heaven, to touch God, to become righteous. And on the road to Damascus, he recognized that that was a broken stairway to heaven that had no ability whatsoever to make him righteous. And in fact, what he recognized was that Jesus was not only alive, but Jesus was the only way, the only source of true truth the only life, the only one that could actually give him access to the Father. And it wouldn't be through his effort. It would be through God's grace and through his faith in Jesus. This became so real for him that years later, when he was writing his letters to the Romans, these are the words that he penned. He probably couldn't have articulated it in the first few days of his conversion. But years later, this was a concept that birthed out on that day when he met Jesus on the road. He says, therefore, 
No one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law, by doing right things. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of our sin. I've always used the analogy of the law is like the x-ray machine at my dentist's office. It reveals the cavities, but it has no power to, to fix the cavities. Only the dentist can do that. But the law was important because in the same way that the x-ray machine reveals to me just how much I need to sit down and let them drill and fill, the law reveals to us how desperately we need a Savior. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God that he yearned for has been made known and accessible to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness is given freely through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. Whoa, hi. Not just to the in crowd, not just to Jews. In fact, Jews and Gentiles, there's no difference between them. For all have sinned. Every single one of us have fallen short. Every single one of us are imperfect. Not a single one of us will be declared righteous by how good we do it and how much we try. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and all are justified freely by His grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus when He paid the penalty of our sins for us. Again, Paul would, or Saul would never have been able to articulate it in that way when he was sitting on his keister in the dust on the road outside of Damascus. But meeting Jesus changed everything. And I'll say this, we have a God who does not change. He's the same today as he was the beginning of creation when he spoke everything into existence. And he was the same as when we will spend eternity back on this renewed earth in a new Jerusalem working alongside of him and caring for his creation. Just as he intended all the way back in the Garden of Eden. He's the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. But Jesus still changes everything. He did for, he did for Paul. He changed his perspective of God. God goes from being distant and someone we have to try to earn our way to, to being accessible. And he began to recognize just how much God loves us and is willing to pursue us, even when there is nothing lovable or redemptive about us. He sought us out. He showed his love for us by sacrificing Jesus, his son, the, the word through which he spoke creation into existence. That word took on flesh and paid the penalty for us. That's how much God loves us. He pursued us. And boy, did he pursue Paul. And Saul begins to recognize just how much God loves, just how gracious God is, and just how inclusive his love is. It's not just for the in crowd. It's not just for the people who look just like us or think just like us or vote just like us. So Saul's perspective of God changed. Furthermore, Saul's perspective of the church changed. When he walked out of Jerusalem, he looked at the church as a bunch of deluded, weak, misguided men and women. Or if they weren't misguided, they were straight up liars because they were claiming something about this guy Jesus that he simply couldn't accept. Jesus is alive? I don't think so. Jesus, the Messiah, that Galilean carpenter? I don't think so. And when he met Jesus on the road, 
he began to recognize that he had been the one who had been deluded. He had been the one who had been mistaken. He had been the one who had been zealous for the wrong things. And he also recognized that the church is the body of Christ. This is something that he will, this is a metaphor he will play with and unpack even more in his letters. If you read the letters of Paul throughout the New Testament, you will see time and again how he talks about the body of Christ or the church as the body of Christ. We are his hands and his feet as though he is making an appeal to the world through us. So not only when we suffer, does our Lord suffer? Not only when people strike us does he feel the pain, but also when people interact with us, whether it's in our neighborhood when we're walking our dog to the park, or whether, whether it's at the supermarket that we you know, frequent regularly, or whether it's at the gym that you go and exercise at, or maybe don't exercise, you just go and kind of like flex in front of the mirror, or <laughs> sit in the jacuzzi. No judgment, I mean, so long as you're going, it's great. Um, or maybe it's our workplace, right? When we're in our workplace, there are people who will never step foot in here on a Sunday morning. They got way more important things in their mind to do. But what, what Saul began to recognize and what I want us to recognize today is that people interact with the church throughout the week when they're interacting with you. You are the body of Christ. People learn about him through the way you live, through the way you love, through the way you forgive, through the way you speak, through the way you listen to people who disagree with what you think. People learn about our Lord. No pressure. <laughs> Thankfully, we have the Holy Spirit, right? Because apart from the Holy Spirit, oh, we are all, yeah, you get it. So, so Paul's perspective of God changes. Paul's perspective of the church changes. And finally, Paul's perspective of himself changes. Meeting Jesus radically altered the way that Paul, Saul, golly, I keep doing that. Doesn't matter. The way that Saul operated, instead of being somebody who has to be zealous about his righteousness and trying to earn it because he's got to show God he's worthy, he becomes a man who can rest in the love that his father has for him and then extend that love to people who were equally unworthy of it. He gets to be the kind of person who gets to go and tell people who never think that they get to have a gift. The greatest gift in history is yours. I want you to know about it. I want you to taste and see it the way I have. It changed his trajectory. Rather than being zealous to destroy the church, he becomes zealous to build the church up. It changes what he experiences. Rather than being somebody who is honored and people sitting at his feet, he suffers greatly, arrested, beaten, stoned, uh, you know, with rocks. Um, you, know, you know what I mean. Um, rather, than being, you know, rather than being comfortable and just sitting there and letting people come to him, he becomes the one who pursues and even gets sent, he even gets arrested and sent on a ship, as we're going to find out later, that gets shipwrecked. And even in that moment, God uses him. He's not a man who got to be comfortable. He was a tool that was used powerfully, and he got powerfully used. He got beaten up. He got scars all over him. Man, he, he came crashing into eternity. His body worked 
And quite honestly, I think that he was grateful for it. Because he recognized that this life isn't all there is. Sometimes I think we get so focused on our circumstances here and now because we think this is all there is. And so we worry about our, what we've accumulated. We worry about, do I have a house? Is my house big enough? Am I going to be able to afford to continue to live here? Am I going to be able to afford, you know, this kind of vehicle? I got to keep up with the Joneses. And man, those Joneses, they run really quick. I got to go, right? You know, how about my body? Do I look okay? Do people think that I'm attractive? Do people give me enough likes when I post stuff on social media? We're so focused on stuff as if this life is all there is. And in prayer this morning, I was just thinking about you know, it's like when I take my kids to, uh, when, they, when my kids were little, 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 back when they had been to Disneyland or to Knott's Berry Farm or to a zoo before, when I would take them there and if we would, <laughs> you know, there's one zoo where we have to walk through um, the gift shop to get into it. And of course, my kids gravitate towards the stuffed animals like, oh my goodness, an alligator, I want it, you know, I want it. And they don't want to leave the gift shop. Because they think that that's all there is. And if I leave, I can't have this. And it's like, hold on, buddy. There's a real one right through the door. Like, you're, you have no idea. This is nothing compared to what we're going to experience in just a little bit. And yet, is the, in the same way, how are we so focused on the stuffed animals of this life when it's just a taste of what's to come? We get so focused and fixated on comfort and safety and accumulation when in reality, they're just, you know, here and gone. And we have eternity to look forward to. So God doesn't change. He is no different today than he was yesterday or he will be a millennia from now. But Jesus changes everything. For Saul, he changed his understanding of himself. He changed his understanding of how he got to be in relationship with God. He changed the trajectory of his life. And Jesus still changes people's lives today. I, I would imagine that if I just held out a mic and said, come and tell me your story. This room is full of stories of how Jesus has changed everything. But I want to give one person that opportunity to share that. So I'm going to invite my friend Pearl to come up. Um, yeah, you can clap for Pearl. Come on. Pearl, why don't you share with us how Jesus changes everything? Okay. I had my thoughts all together until you took us to that zoo. <laughs> I know which one you're talking about. Thank you. I've um, been there several times and my granddaughter's always stuck in that gift shop. <laughs> but um, anyways, um, it's such an honor to be up here. And I have to tell you that I am little bit nervous because I've never been asked to speak without notes, but um, I just want to speak from my heart. Uh, there was a time in my life, I was raised in a large family, there were eight of us, and I was the next to the youngest, and my, uh, that's better, huh? And um, I was never my dad's favorite, you know, uh, because he had all these older kids and then my youngest sister, so I never really felt the love of my father and the approval, his approval. So um, I did everything I could. You know, I excelled in school and did all those things, but it just didn't work that way. So um, one day I met the love of my life, and his name was Mike. 
And he was like everything I'd ever dreamed of. He was my Prince Charming, and I was his princess. And um, we worked so hard to have a life different than the ones that we both grew up in because our homes were very toxic. And um, so we loved each other dearly, and we wanted to uh, raise our family in the church. Well, uh, little did I know at the time, but I thought I had to work for God's approval like I did my dad's. I worked so hard, I can't even begin to tell you of the list of things I did in the church. I was the founding chairman of the Christian Women's Club. I taught uh, child evangelism for years. I um, won awards for uh, teaching uh, Sunday school to little seven-year-olds five years in a row at a big church. And uh, it was kind of comical one day. I found these awards and all the little plaques were all, the glue had come off. <laughs> so I just thought, you know, what, what is this all about, you know? So, but anyways, I kept working and working in church thinking, well, someday, you know, you know I'm going to get God's approval. And my husband did the same. We were both uh, really active in our churches. So um, everything was great. We moved uh, to into our brand-new uh, dream home in Newport Beach, and had everything was just going wonderfully. Until one morning, I woke up to the sound of my husband's voice calling me, and I went in around 6 o'clock in the morning, and my husband dropped dead in my arms from a massive heart attack. He was 52, and I was only 50 at the time. And um, it was just such a traumatic experience because this was the one that I loved so much. I, my whole identity was wrapped up in him. I didn't realize I was Mrs. Mike, you know, and the things that I did and everything. You know, everybody looked at me and thought, wow, she's got it all, you know. But uh, it wasn't long after that. I just thought, you know, who am I now, you know? I had a therapist ask me one time, you know, if something were to happen, if your husband were to die, your uh, kids were to run away or whatever, would there be enough of you to go on living? And I, back then, I had to say no. I, there wouldn't be enough of me to go on living because I really didn't know God the way I thought I did, the way I do now. And the thing is, is that I just remember when Mike died, uh, it wasn't long after that, I shook my fist at God. And I said, you know what, God, I guess I'm not your favorite either. And I just had this rebellious place in my heart that was dead. And I just, I didn't want to serve him anymore. I didn't want to love him anymore. And I just said, I've had it. You know, I worked so hard to be good. And what do I get in return? And so... Um, Time went on, and I started drinking because it became a way of escape for me. I started self-medicating. I didn't go to bars or anything like that because, after all, I was a Christian. You know, I was Mrs. Mike, the widow now. And so I, I drank a lot at home until I would pass out every day. And that went on for eight years. It just progressively got worse. And my neighbors would see me taking the trash out, and I'd fall in the you know, the bushes and stuff. It was just awful when I think back of what I did. But I just lost all of that drive to be that good Christian. And I didn't care anymore. Until finally my son stepped in and he says, you know what, Mom, this is enough. He says, I don't want you around my kids. I don't want you in my life as long as you're living like this. 
So he tricked me into going up to celebrate recovery. And um, so I, I got involved there, and um, I quit drinking on um, August 5th, 2005. I haven't had a drink since because I've found that there's much better stuff to drink than <laughs> wine. <laughs> and I don't have to be sedated anymore. But anyways, I got involved in that. And then uh, this one thing led to another. And then uh, God led me to this little church where I have never felt the love of God so much in my heart. There was a time uh, right after I quit drinking, I sat on my sofa. I had a prayer shawl that a lady had made for me, and I put it over my head. And I just said, God, you know, I really want to know who you really are. I want to go into the Holy of Holies with you, and I'm just going to sit here until I feel your presence. So as I was sitting there, I had this vision, and it was like, I was standing right outside the Holy of Holies, and here's this big curtain. And all of a sudden, this hand reached out for me and started to pull me in. And I said, oh, no, but wait, wait. I've got to get my kids. I've got to get my friends. I've got to get my brothers and sisters. And he said, no, Pearl. There's only room for you and me in here. That is when I had my conversion. That is when I really felt the love of God is just for me. I don't have to prove anything. I don't have to be the best at anything, which I'm not, you know, but I don't have to pretend that I'm something I'm not anymore. I'm not Mrs. Mike. I am a daughter of the king, and he loves me. And if there weren't anybody else around in this whole wide world, he would still pull me in and love on me. So that's my story, and I'm sticking to it. Thank you. Stay with me. Don't go anywhere. Hey, I'd love to invite the, the uh, worship team to come forward, but as you were sharing, I, I, could, I couldn't help but really be struck in particular by that... Um, those awards that you had accumulated. I mean, just think, I think of Paul saying, you know, all of the things that I would point to to say, this is where my identity derives. They're, they're rubbish. And I just think of those awards that are tarnishing. Um, and in the, in the ways that some of us have carried awards with us in here today in our hearts saying, God, this is what makes me acceptable. And others of us carry the wounds, right? That the, whether it's alcohol or, or pornography or um, just being in a relationship, that's the only way that I can feel accepted. So you bounce from relationship to relationship or you just are, you are so utterly aware of your unusability that you've written yourself off like Saul did. Um, I, I love, I, I skipped it earlier, and I just, these are the words that Saul wrote years later to one of his disciples, a guy named Timothy. He said, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, <laughs> of whom I am the worst. But for that very reason, because there was nothing redeeming in me, I was shown mercy so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his immense patience. Boy, I'm grateful for his patience, huh? As an example for those who would believe in him and receive eternal life. God chose Saul in part because he could show off 
the ridiculousness, the audacity of his grace. God chose Pearl not because she was a good servant who had fallen on hard times. He chose her because he loves her. He loves us before we have ever turned back. Some of us are still in open rebellion. Some of us have been in open earning it mode, right? Trying, trying, trying to climb that broken stairway to heaven. Some of us are in here this morning and you recognize you have been a, you prayed a prayer and you have been claiming to be a Christian for a very long time, but you have yet to taste and see Jesus. You have yet to feel the sort of intimacy that Pearl experienced on that day when she felt like Jesus just invited her behind the curtain, just her and him, because he loves her just as she is. And if that's you, if you're in here this morning and you long to taste and see that Jesus is good, that he, you long to simply rest in his love, would you join me in standing? And by the way, I say join me because I'm standing here. I, I just want to be able to rest in his love. So if, if that's you, would you just stand with me? And I'm going to ask Pearl to pray for us. And if, if you're standing, if, if there's somebody standing near you or you're standing near somebody else, just go ahead and put a hand out. Okay. Dear Lord Jesus, we are just so grateful for you. It doesn't matter who we are, what we've done or where we've been, Father, that you want us. Just like you said, you know, you go after the 99, but there's still that one. There might be one here, Father, that you're calling today. And I just pray that they would just submit, give their life to you. Lord Jesus, I'll never forget that time. And I just relive it every day that you are so precious to me, Father. I, I wouldn't even have the courage to get up here and do what I just did, Lord, because I'm, I'm not that brave. But I just want everybody to know, Father, that you are so loving, so good, and so kind that you would die for us if we were the only ones that ever sinned. You would still give your life for us. And we thank you for that. I thank you for my church, my pastor. Just bless each one of us today that we would have a glorious day just rejoicing in the fact that you love us mm -hmm. and you gave your life for us. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 Let's worship our Father together. Thank you, Father. You've got to help me. <laughs> I will.